Our text is verse number 8, but let's begin reading with verse 1. 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience and faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. We'll stop there. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would once again be our teacher, and not just a teacher of the mind, mm -hmm. but of the heart. Yeah. We pray that our, our Savior might be properly magnified today. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I've already suggested, I would like to take both messages today and consider the subject of the law. My subject is not the United States Constitution, although that might be preached in a few Baptist churches today. And it's not the 200,000 page uh, federal legislation material, code of federal regulations, there is undoubtedly a message in those things and applications in those things. But my consideration is the law of God that we find in God's word. I'm confining myself to the law that Timothy is referred to here, that Paul mentions to this young man. And I'll try to define that law a little more clearly as we move on this morning and later on today. Please make plans to join us at 6 o'clock for more explanation and a slightly enjoyable application, if I can put it that way. That remains to be seen. This morning's message is entitled, The Lawful Use of the Law. While our evening message will be more about ways and some ways in which the law is not lawfully used. If you don't get uh, both of these bookends, your library may end up on the floor. They go together. 
Of course, the secular world, the world of the lost, the world of the unbelieving, abuse the law in various ways. And that'll be somewhat my message this evening. But it needs to be pointed out that the religious world also abuses the law of God. And that's more my theme this morning. I was ordained to the gospel ministry 51 years ago this coming uh, Thanksgiving, November 23rd, 1972. Victory Baptist Church in Wichita Falls, Texas was my ordaining church. There were nine men sitting on the council that day. It was a fellowship. They weren't there for my ordination. They were there for the fellowship meeting that Victory Baptist Church always had uh, during the Thanksgiving season. But they scheduled me in there as well on this occasion. I was as nervous that day as I've ever been in my life. Partially because there were five or six men that I did not know, and they were glaring at me, as well as the congregation and other people who were, were there. Buddy Bryant, my pastor, was the ordination chairman, and later on, E.L. Bynum preached the charge. So it was an important day. I did reasonably well during the interrogation, uh, but there was one question that completely stumped me. I would, well, it didn't stump me. I, I just, just say I muffed it. There had been some questions there about what it takes to be saved. There were questions there about uh, uh, faith in Christ and repentance and depravity and that sort of thing, and that was in the back of my mind. And then all of a sudden, one of these strangers, one of these men that I did not know, asked the question, is the law good or bad? It just seemed to come out of left field. I didn't know what. And I was already thinking about uh, salvation by grace through faith. With that, I was, I was leaning in the wrong direction. And I just blurted out, no, it's... Law's not good. In regard to salvation, it's not a part of salvation. That's what I was thinking. Well, the man very graciously uh, corrected me. He kindly replied that Paul said in Romans chapter 7 and verse number 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. I just said it was bad. Well, I passed the test that day, but it was not with 100%. And I was ordained that way. And I don't think the Victory Baptist Church in Wichita Falls has regretted that at any point in time over the last half century. That verse from Romans 7, to which my interrogator referred, is part of a, a four-chapter study of the law that Paul does there in the book of Romans. The law also comes up in his epistles to the Galatians, and he refers to the law in Hebrews. Perhaps a reference for those, the, the purpose for those references was that there were Jews following Paul about saying that he thought the law was bad that he was casting aside God's law. 
there were, they were saying that Paul did not have a very high regard for God's law because he didn't tell Timothy and he didn't tell other Gentile converts that they had to go back to Leviticus, they had to go back to Deuteronomy and do all of those things that uh, Moses gave to Israel to do. Therefore, Paul doesn't appreciate the law. Not so. The truth was, Paul had a very high opinion of the law when properly understood. His problem was that he had a very low regard for those who took the law and misapplied it. These who were accusing him. It needs to be pointed out that sometimes we substitute, at least in our minds, we substitute, maybe that's not the right word. We think of the Bible when we hear the word law, or we think of the law when we hear the word Bible, or shall I say the Old Testament. Romans 7.12 doesn't say, wherefore the Bible is holy, the scriptures are holy, just, and good. They are. No doubt about it. But that's not what Paul is saying there in Romans <laughs> chapter 7. In Romans 3, four chapters earlier, Paul says that the Jews had a wonderful blessing which the Gentiles did not have. The Romans didn't have it, the Greeks didn't have it, but the Jews did. What advantage then hath the Jew? much in every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. The nation of Israel had the Old Testament. The people of Egypt didn't. The people of uh, uh, the East didn't. Romans 3.2, Paul spoke of the oracles of God, but he didn't use the word law in that case. And in the next verse, he differentiated between, between the law and another part of the Old Testament scriptures. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament contains the law and the prophets. Now elsewhere, Paul refers to the scriptures. Scripture means holy writing. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The law is certainly a part of the scriptures, but the scriptures include other things beside the law. The Bible marks a difference between the law and the prophets, and it also points out a difference between the law and the Psalms or the writings. What Paul says of the law in some places relates to God's moral and universal laws. And we'll deal more with this this evening. And then in other places, Paul refers to ceremonial laws, which had been given to Israel. There's a difference. Getting back to my subject, the proper use of the law requires an understanding of their purpose. And I'd like to show you that purpose 
as it comes in three parts. There's the primary purpose of the law, the secondary purpose of the law, and if you like, the ultimate purpose of the law. The primary purpose of the law is to reveal to us God. This is the Lord. The law reveals to us his character. It reveals to us his attributes, also his will. In Romans chapter 1, perhaps, perhaps turn to Romans chapter 1. Give you something to do. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verse number 20. Paul tells us, The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that we are all without excuse. Because that when we knew God, ooh, we knew God, we, I'm throwing the different pronoun in there, we glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in our imaginations, and our foolish heart was darkened. How did we know God? Professing ourselves to be wise, we became fools. We changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave us up. With sin, reducing mankind to not much more than brute beasts, over the centuries, we have lost or cast aside what knowledge of God was created into us. We don't want that anymore. We have retained the general fact that there is a God, but we have lost who that God is. So we've changed our impression of God to four-footed creatures or planets or nothing at all. And that's why there's such an advantage to the Jews over the rest of us. They had this book. They had the Old Testament which said God did this, God is this, and so on. That nation did not deserve any more of the blessing of God or the knowledge of God than the Egyptians or the Philistines. But the Lord was gracious to Israel, gave to Israel Moses, and to Moses he gave revelation, and Moses shared that with the people he was leading. Moses and Israel were at that point supposed to be um, ministers of the word to everyone else. They were to share or re-educate the world. But unfortunately, Israel retained the knowledge that they had, confined it to their wicked hearts, and over time it, uh, I almost said evolved, but it's just the opposite, just deteriorated. Until Jesus' day or Paul's day, Israel really didn't know God any better than the Romans did. Basically, the Lord told Moses through the law that he, Jehovah, is holy. Absolutely holy. 
perfectly holy. The law also said that as creatures made in God's likeness, we are supposed to be holy as well. Picture an old wagon wheel, old style, four or five feet across. There are ten spokes that uh, hold it or are part of it. Each of those ten spokes run from a central hub out to the rim. Each of the laws that God has given to us is like one of the spokes on that wheel. And every one of them run back to the hub. Every one of them comes from the Lord and reaches out to where, uh, I'm mixing metaphors, where the rubber meets the road. It begins with the holiness of God. Mm. We have these spokes. And here's where life is. Mm. Why shouldn't we murder people? Because God is holy and man was created in God's image. That's not my idea. That's what the Word of God says. So the Lord forbade people from murdering for that reason. And he also ordered that the murderer should be executed again for that reason. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Genesis 9-6. So why should we not murder? Because God is holy. He has made this rule and we are supposed to be holy as God is. Why shouldn't we lie or deceive people? Because God is holy and we were created to be like God. God cannot lie. Titus 1-2. And therefore we should not lie. Why should we not covet or steal the property of others? Because God is holy and we should learn to depend upon Him for His own wisdom and goodness toward us. If we really need what that other fellow has, then the holy good God would give it to us. So we don't need to steal it. We don't even need to covet it. We could look at each and every point of the moral law and make the same kind of application. It comes because God is holy. Each point goes back to that nature of the Lord. So the law is an expression of Jehovah's holiness, but also his will. He says in the law, this is what I want you to do. And sometimes he says, and this is why I want you to do it. I am holy, for example. Very often parents tell their children to do or not do certain things. And that two-year-old may not understand the logic behind the command. But the command stands anyway. Sometimes there's time to explain. And there are arguments that older children can understand. But at times there is no opportunity to explain don't do this, or do not do this because I need an immediate response. In those cases, to have already learned 
to instantly obey mom is a good idea. It may save a person's life. Similarly, sometimes the Lord explains to children like us that we should do or we should not do certain things. But there are occasions when our minds and our hearts uh, couldn't understand or we just, the Lord knows we, we, we will not understand. We determine not to understand. And the Lord merely says, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy. For I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up of, out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy. For I am holy. The Lord is not obligated to give us specific reasons for any of his laws. He's God. We are not. We are his subjects. Sometimes he says, do this particular thing. And I'm telling you so. Uh, the very first commandment, the one that was given to Adam, did the Lord explain why? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. Neither shalt... <laughs> Sorry. Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. I almost quoted Eve. Let's quote the Lord. Why, Lord? He's not obligated to tell Adam why. Don't eat that fruit. Don't do it. God had a purpose in it. But Adam and Eve weren't given that purpose. The law is an expression of God's holiness. It tells us about his will, do this, do not do this. And it also describes his justice. Justice is an expression of what is morally and ethically right or righteous. And justice is as much a part of God as his attributes of omnipotence or eternality. God's law tells us what is right and righteous. And then it tells us what will happen when we fall short of that perfect standard. Moses was waxing eloquent in Deuteronomy 32, but he hit the nail on the head. It doesn't sound like that to begin with. Let me just share it with you. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth, without iniquity, just and right is he always. Yes. I added the always. The entire Bible is the revelation of the just and holy God. We see it when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. We see it in the destruction of the world in the days of Noah. We see it at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We learn about the Lord in the establishment of his church. 
We learn about the Lord, of course, in the incarnation of Christ Jesus. But in another way, we see God reflected in his law. As if it was if he was captured on some sort of spiritual, digital uh, video. There is God. We see him in the law. That brings us to the secondary purpose of the law. Turning what I have just said just slightly, the law reveals sin. It stands between us and the eternal God. It points up and says, this is Jehovah. And it points at us and says, you're not anywhere near Jehovah. You're a wretched sinner. It provides us with a standard against which to measure ourselves. It therefore shows us how deficient we are when it comes to holiness, godliness. The law is not simply a declaration of what is right and holy. It censures, it condemns what is not right and holy. And that means me. It defines and illustrates righteousness. And by doing so, it defines and illustrates sin. <clears throat> then it takes the next step in sentencing the sinner and silencing his protests of self-righteousness. It leaves the sinner, it leaves us, without any justification, any apology, any excuse. Sin is not simply an act of disobedience against a law. Sin is an attack upon the person of God. In reality, our ultimate standard is not the law. Our standard is the character of the lawgiver. And the Lord has given us his law because we are so blind and foolish that we cannot see him without this revelation to explain his character to us. We need the spectacles of the two tables of the law. One over here and one over there. For example, Proverbs 14.21 says, He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth. Here we have one of a great many specific sins. The person who hates his neighbor is a sinner. If you hate the man for the color of his skin or the accent that he uses when he speaks, if you hate him for the country from which he, his ancestors came, or for his religion, or his criminal record, or any of his past sins, if you hate him for these things, you are a sinner. Yes. Those aren't my words. Those are what the Lord said. And the rest of Proverbs 14.21 says, But he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Here we have a picture of the Lord acting in mercy after we have been described as a sinner. Another example, James 14. Excuse me, James 4, 17 from the New Testament. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, it is sin. God is good. He expects us to do good. But when we fail to be good or do good, we prove ourselves to be sinners. 
Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. The law is a revelation of the will and of the heart of God. Transgression of that law is sin. And he that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. The Lord and the devil are opposites. In Galatians, Paul deals with this subject of purpose of the law in great lengths. Because that's the epistle that really deals with these uh, Judaizers who are demanding everybody follow the law. In chapter 3, he gets to the point. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Why is the Bible and the law which it contains so neglected by our society? It's because, well, I suppose there's several answers. <coughs> One is, we don't really want to see who we are. Yes. Yep. We're, I'm better than what I really am. <laughs> no, you're not. That's right. We don't want to come to the realization that the God we worship is not God. So we have these fake and imitation. And we have our form of worship, which is not according to the word of God. We don't want to know how ugly and horrible, terrible we really are. It's the purpose of the Bible to do exactly that. You are a wretch. You are a sinner. So the oracles of God, and particularly the law, are a gift of God. First, to teach us about the Lord, and secondly, to teach us about ourselves. In these things, we come to see the ultimate purpose of the law. To prepare the way for the gospel. Galatians 3, 24 and 25, which Brother Kilgard read a few minutes ago, uses a wonderful word, which is translated schoolmaster. It's a perfectly good word. Perfectly good word. But when we dip into the original Greek, which Paul used to write this letter, we find the word pedagogue, which is a, is a school teacher. But uh, it literally means child leader. It refers to a special group of people in Roman culture. It refers to a special office within that society. And this kind of schoolmaster was not simply a teacher with 30 children under him or under her. The people who first heard Paul's letter pictured a very special person when they heard the word pedagogue. A pedagogue in Roman society was usually an educated slave, a servant, whose sole purpose in life was to train up the children, the real children of the family, so that they might become acceptable to father, 
to the father. The schoolmaster of that little boy taught him how to read and write, to add and subtract. He taught him philosophy. He taught him how to think, how to reason. He taught him politics. He taught him whatever the father wanted the child to know. And only when the child grew into a young man, having learned all that the father required, at that point, the child could then be adopted as a legal heir of the father. It's just the way things were done in that society. So as a slave, this uh, schoolmaster had tremendous responsibility laid on him. His life was only as valuable as his ability to pass on what father wanted the child to know. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The Christians of Galatia at the time were being deceived by religious heretics into thinking that the law was necessary in the process of salvation. They were being told that if they obeyed the law as best they could, they could be granted eternal life. But that was nothing but lies and impossibilities. The maintenance of the law, the keeping of the law, cannot do away with the wickedness of the human heart. Galatians 3, 21-24. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law which, had, could, which could have given life, then barely righteousness could have been from the law, but it, it can't. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them who believe. But before faith came, we were under the law, shut up unto faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. God's law is not the sinner's savior, and the law is not God himself. The law is a slave to the father. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. The law reveals the perfect holiness of God. It clearly shows that we have not come up to that perfect standard of the Lord. And if this schoolmaster can teach us those two things, then we're left with nothing but, where do I go to be saved? Ah! The Lord Jesus. It teaches us that we need help. We need a savior. Silly illustration. We don't see this very much anymore, but uh, perhaps from your early days or maybe in a small community, you're driving down the street and you see a sign that simply says, hospital. That's it, just hospital. What's that supposed to mean? Several implications. First, in the days before soundproofing, for the sake of the sick and the suffering, um, we're encouraged to stay quiet as best we can. 
Second, it hinted, be careful, there may be some emergency vehicles going back and forth here, or someone in a cast is not going to be very quick running across the road. And third, it said, if you are injured, there are doctors nearby. Let's say that someone had cut the fingers of his right hand off. Fingers are gone. He's bleeding profusely. Lots of blood. What if he saw the sign hospital, thinking, I can get some help here. So he sits down under the sign and leans up against it, uh, holding his hand as tightly as he can, waiting for some solution. <coughs> he could very easily die within a stone's throw of the hospital. It's not good enough to sit under the law. Law's not going to heal you. It's not going to save you. In fact, the law cuts off our hands and our feet and our hearts and our pride. And it leaves the door open for the Lord Jesus. What should we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. We could go on. This is in Romans chapter 7. We are justified by faith. We are made whole, not by the law, but by the grace of God who wrote that law. Turn to Romans 3. I know you have it memorized. Romans 3.19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. That's the purpose of the law. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. No one will be saved in God's sight. For by the law, simply, is the knowledge of sin. All of sin that comes short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins. I know I'm skipping. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Works? Nay. There is another law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The law proves that you are a sinner, falling infinitely short of the glory and the righteousness of the holy God. It proves that you haven't got a hope. It proves that you don't have a prayer at obedience sufficient to make you righteous. It tells you you need a Savior. Then the Gospel declares that the Savior is Jesus Christ, yes. the Lamb of God, yes. who gave His life, shedding His blood on the cross of Calvary. Together, the law and the Gospel tell you to humbly repent before the Lord. Not only recognizing your wretchedness, but your need of God's mercy and grace. Mm -hmm.
Repent before God of your sinful condition. The gospel urges us all to put our faith and hope in Christ. To redeem us from our sins. Under the law, you are condemned. You are a sinner worthy of eternal judgment in the lake of fire. But the gospel tells us of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, who deliberately, who willingly went to the cross to satisfy that law, to meet its demands. As prescribed and illustrated in the law, the Lamb of God shed His blood as an atonement for your transgressions against the Lord. Have you claimed that sacrifice? Or are you still trying to get by some other way? Or just in denial? Have you repented of your sin? Is your faith in the Lord Jesus as the sacrifice that the law demanded, demands still? Again, God's law tells us, each of us, that we need a Savior. And the oracles of God go on to tell us about Christ Jesus. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we may be justified by faith in Him. Is your faith in Christ this morning? Is your faith in the Lord? Please stand.